Section 16 of the final report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by P.J. Landau. Final report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Chapter 5. Response and Containment, Part 3. The Top Kill and Junk Shot, May 26-28. Throughout May, the federal government increased its presence in Houston, the hub of the well control effort. In early May, scientists and engineers from three Department of Energy national laboratories began to work on-site with BP on containment. On May 7, Secretary Salazar asked McNutt, who had traveled to the Gulf with him on May 4, to remain in Houston. Finally, on May 10, President Obama directed Secretary Chu to form a team of government officials and scientists to work with BP on source control. On May 11, Secretary Chu called several prominent scientists and asked them to join him the next morning for a meeting in Houston. The May 12 meeting signified the beginning of an oversight role for Secretary Chu and his team of science advisors. Secretary Chu is a Nobel Prize-winning physicist who had previously directed the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, where he had led an effort to expand research into synthetic biofuels. Though well known for his wide-ranging intelligence, Secretary Chu was not an oil and gas or drilling expert. During the following weeks, he immersed himself in the finer points of petroleum engineering and became intimately involved in decision-making with respect to containment of the well. Although they were highly respected within their fields of study, the members of the advisory team had limited experience with well control and varying levels of experience with petroleum engineering generally. Secretary Chu assumed, correctly, that BP had already hired a host of containment experts, and he wanted advisors known for creative thinking. His principal deputy on the team, Tom Hunter, was about to retire from his position as director of Sandia National Laboratories. Along with McNutt, Hunter served as a link between the on-site government scientists and engineers and the rest of Secretary Chu's science advisors, who were, for the most part, based elsewhere. Another team member, Richard Garwin, helped design the world's first hydrogen bomb and had worked to extinguish oil fires in Kuwait following the first Gulf War. Alexander Slocum, an MIT professor who holds about 70 patents, had done some previous work on drilling design. George Cooper had been the head of the petroleum engineering program at the University of California, Berkeley. The role of both the National Laboratory scientists and Secretary Chu's advisors took time to evolve from helping BP diagnose the situation, for instance using gamma-ray imaging to show the position of the BOP's rams, to substantively overseeing BP's decisions on containment. In part, this was because the Secretary of Energy, his team of advisors, and the National Laboratory's personnel lacked a formal role within unified command. Their supervision was informally grafted onto the command framework. In addition, the National Laboratories team did not immediately integrate itself into the existing source control structure 
led by MMS and the Coast Guard. While MMS, the Coast Guard, and McNutt worked out of offices on the third floor of BP's Houston headquarters, the National Laboratories team sat on the 18th floor. One MMS staff member, who was in Houston from late April through early July, said that he never interacted with the National Laboratories team. They never reached out to him, and he had no idea what they were working on. Perhaps because the lines of authority were unclear, BP's sharing of data with the government science teams was uneven at first. BP gave information when asked, but not proactively, so government officials had to know what data they needed and ask for it specifically. Finally, both the National Laboratories team and the science advisors had to educate themselves on the situation and on deep water petroleum engineering before they knew enough to challenge BP and participate in high-level decision-making. With more substantive government oversight on the way, but not yet in place, BP moved toward its first attempt to kill the well completely via procedures called the, quote, top kill and junk shot. Those names were fodder for late-night comics. Jay Leno suggested that the top kill sounded like some bad Steven Seagal movie from the 80s. In fact, both procedures are standard industry techniques for stopping the flow from a blown-out well, though they had never been used in deep water. A top kill, also known as a momentum or dynamic kill, involves pumping heavy drilling mud into the top of the well through the BOP's choke and kill lines at rates and pressures high enough to force escaping oil back down the well and into the reservoir. A junk shot complements a top kill. It involves pumping material, including pieces of tire rubber and golf balls, into the bottom of a BOP through the choke and kill lines. That material ideally gets caught on obstructions within the BOP and impedes the flow of oil and gas. By slowing or stopping the flow, a successful junk shot makes it easier to execute a top kill. BP's top kill team began work in the immediate aftermath of the initial efforts to trigger the BOP. In planning the operation, both BP and federal engineers modeled different scenarios based on different rates at which oil might be flowing from the well. National Laboratories engineers used the then-current flow rate estimate of 5,000 barrels per day. Paul Toombs, BP's vice president of engineering, recalled that given the planned pumping rates, the top kill was unlikely to succeed with flow rates greater than 15,000 barrels of oil per day. A senior administration official similarly recalled being told by a BP engineer that the top kill would not work if the flow rate exceeded 13,000 barrels per day. With the approval of the federal on-scene coordinator, the top kill began on the afternoon of May 26. Secretary Chu and some members of his science team were in the command center in Houston. During three separate attempts over three consecutive days, BP pumped mud at rates exceeding 100,000 barrels per day and fired numerous shots of junk into the BOP. During each effort, pressures within the well initially dropped, but then flattened, indicating that the top kill had stopped making progress. After the third unsuccessful attempt, BP and the government agreed to discontinue the strategy. As with the coffer dam, BP struggled with public communications surrounding the top kill. 
At the time, both industry and government officials were highly uncertain about the operation's probability of success. One MMS employee estimated that probability as less than 50%, while a BP contractor said that he only gave the top kill a tiny chance to succeed. But BP's Hayward told reporters, quote, we rate the probability of success between 60 and 70 percent, end quote. After the top kill failed, that prediction may have lessened public confidence in BP's management of the effort to control the well. The federal role increases late May. By late May, the competence and effectiveness of the federal response was under assault. Polls showed that 60% of adults thought the government was doing a poor job of handling the spill. News articles chronicled local anger that BP appeared in charge of cleanup efforts. The government's estimate of the flow rate was climbing, and with the failure of the top kill, no end to the spill was in sight. On May 28, President Obama made a second trip to the region to see response efforts and meet with state and local leaders. Plaquemines Parish President Billy Nungesser would later claim incorrectly that he had not been invited to this important meeting. He told the Plaquemines Gazette that he had smuggled himself and another parish president across bays and bayous and through an armada of state boats, gaining access only after threatening to call Anderson Cooper. The meeting with the president occurred at the Coast Guard station in Grand Isle, Louisiana, and included, among others, Governor Jindal, Florida Governor Charlie Crist, Alabama Governor Bob Riley, Louisiana Senators David Vitter and Mary Landrieu, Louisiana Congressman Charlie Mellencon, New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, Lafourche Parish President Charlotte Randolph, and Parish President Nungesser. President Obama emphasized the seriousness with which the government was treating the spill, announcing at a press conference after the meeting that he would triple the federal manpower and equipment involved in the response. Though Coast Guard responders believed they were already dedicating every available resource to the spill and did not see across the board tripling as the best use of resources, they dutifully attempted to triple the personnel engaged and boom employed. They chronicled their progress in Louisiana in a report titled, quote, Status on Tripling, end quote. While in Grand Isle, President Obama also received an earful about Louisiana's proposal to build massive offshore sand berms as a physical obstacle to oil, which the National Incident Command had declined to approve in its entirety. Parish President Nungesser, seated immediately to the president's left, was the first attendee to speak at the meeting and was adamant about the need for the entire berms project. Governor Jindal echoed him. In line with the federal government's effort to be more responsive to local demands, President Obama turned to Admiral Allen and asked him in front of the berm's strongest proponents to figure out a solution. The tripling order and promise to promptly reevaluate the berms project were only two of many actions at the end of May by which the federal government attempted to demonstrate its focus on the Deepwater Horizon disaster and commitment to the communities in the Gulf. The president signed the executive order creating this commission on May 21. On May 27, he announced a moratorium on offshore deepwater drilling and held a press conference about the administration response. 
The same day, Elizabeth Birnbaum, the head of MMS, resigned, quote, on her own terms and on her own volition, end quote, according to Secretary Salazar. Most symbolically, the federal government stopped holding joint press conferences with BP. From June 1 on, Admiral Allen gave his own daily press briefing, but local officials continued to attack the adequacy of the federal response and to assert that BP was running the response effort. The Battles Over Boom and Berms, May to June While the response had many dimensions, local communities fixated on the deployment of boom to prevent oil from washing ashore. Although not the most effective response tool, boom is a measurable physical object that visibly stops oil. Residents could not see source control efforts on the ocean floor or skimming far out on the Gulf, but they could see boats laying ribbons of bright orange or yellow floating boom to protect their shorelines. According to one Terrebonne Parish resident, boom was eye candy. Seeing it gave him a sense of satisfaction, even if it did not do much. The Moratorium on May 27, after a 30-day interagency examination of deep-water drilling operations, Secretary Salazar directed MMS to issue a six-month moratorium on all drilling at a water depth of more than 500 feet in the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean. Department officials justified the moratorium as providing time for this commission to do its work and for MMS to undertake needed safety reforms. The moratorium took effect on May 30 and halted work on 33 offshore deepwater rigs in the Gulf. The oil and gas industry, local communities, and elected officials from the region immediately criticized the action. Senator Landrieu testified before this commission in July that the moratorium was, quote, unnecessary, ill-conceived, and has actually created a second economic disaster for the Gulf Coast, that has the potential to become greater than the first, end quote. On July 30, BP established a $100 million charitable fund to assist rig workers experiencing economic hardship because of the moratorium. The federal government concluded that the moratorium's impact would be less severe. On September 16, a federal interagency report stated that the moratorium, quote, may temporarily result in up to 8,000 to 12,000 fewer jobs in the Gulf Coast, end quote, with these losses attributed mostly to small businesses. Louisiana elected officials criticized the report's methodology and the decision to conduct this analysis after, instead of before, the moratorium began. A group of companies that provide support services for deep water drilling vessels challenged the moratorium in federal district court in Louisiana. On June 22, the court ruled that the moratorium violated the Administrative Procedure Act and enjoined its continued enforcement. The federal government asked the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to stay the district court's ruling, but the Fifth Circuit denied that request on July 8. The Department of the Interior then issued a revised moratorium on July 12, which limited drilling based on the equipment a rig used rather than the depth of the wellhead. Neither the first nor the second moratorium provided a company with the option of avoiding the bar on drilling by proving the safety of its rig operations to the government. A second group of offshore support companies challenged the revised moratorium. 
Before the district court could rule on this new lawsuit, the department lifted the moratorium on October 12, seven weeks ahead of its scheduled November 30 expiration. On September 30, a few weeks before lifting the moratorium, the department promulgated new regulations on topics such as well casing and cementing, blowout preventers, safety certification, emergency response, and worker training. Compliance with the new rules is a prerequisite for both shallow and deep water drilling permits. Some companies called these new requirements a, quote, de facto moratorium, end quote, because of the time needed to meet them and for the department to verify compliance. Boom became a symbol of federal responsiveness to local communities. NOAA scientists worked through the night, every night, to prepare oil trajectory forecasts for federal responders to review as they began their days. Responders used these forecasts to plan their actions, including where to place boom. Federal responders thought that officials and residents complaining about lack of boom did not understand their strategy for deployment. Officials and residents thought that federal responders were inattentive to local needs. The National Incident Command was not deaf to these complaints and gave an unofficial order to, quote, keep the parishes happy, end quote. Coast Guard responders distributed many miles of boom according to political rather than operational imperatives. They felt hamstrung by the outrage that resulted when a parish or state felt slighted by allocation decisions, so they placed boom wherever they could. Every governor wanted more boom. When the oiling risk was highest in Louisiana, the Coast Guard directed boom there. Governor Riley of Alabama contended that this decision left his state's shoreline in danger. At a press conference in mid-May, Governor Jindal said that the containment boom provided to Louisiana by the Coast Guard and BP was inadequate, while local officials behind him held up pictures of oil-coated pelicans. Florida Department of Environmental Protection Secretary Mike Soule told reporters, quote, a lot of the decisions about Florida are being made in Mobile, end quote. He said that he had warned the federal on-scene coordinator, quote, Florida is important. We have 770 miles of shoreline to protect. I'm concerned that we're not getting enough focus on Florida, end quote. The competition for boom occurred at the parish and town levels as well. St. Bernard Parish had its own contractor bring in boom. It then sought to make the Coast Guard purchase and deploy that boom locally. Some parishes reportedly ordered boom directly from suppliers and told them to, quote, send the bill to BP, end quote. Lafourche Parish kept demanding more boom until it realized that certain skimmers were more effective and began demanding those skimmers instead. Unified Command struggled to track how much boom was deployed and where. Initially, responders made booming decisions based on their knowledge of the region's geography, the location of environmentally sensitive areas, and NOAA's oil trajectory forecasts. The oil spill planning documents did not lay out a specific booming map because the coastal ecosystem, particularly in the marshes, frequently changes. Unified Command eventually brought the parish presidents together to review boom plans that each parish had created. Some were infeasible, for instance, requesting that boom be placed in tidal passes 
where currents would drive oil under the boom or else damage it. In addition to worrying about useless or unnecessary boom, responders were concerned that storms could blow it into delicate marsh habitat. They deployed boom based on local pressures, only to pull it away during bad weather. Once parishes had boom, they did not want to let it go. On July 22, parish president Nungesser threatened to blow out the tires of trucks carrying away boom as the Coast Guard prepared for Tropical Storm Bonnie. Though he claimed that he was joking, the FBI called to reprimand him. Other parish presidents issued orders prohibiting the removal of response equipment from their parishes and threatened Coast Guard responders with arrests. Officials asked responders to measure feet of boom deployed, a statistic that was time-consuming to generate and had little value in assessing response efforts. All of these problems distracted responders from their focus on cleaning up the spill. The boom wars never reached a resolution. Responders knew that in deploying boom, they were often responding to the politics of the spill rather than the spill itself, and the miles of boom along the coastline did not prevent oil from washing up on the shore. The boom wars were relatively civil, however, compared to the struggle among the state of Louisiana, the Army Corps of Engineers, the National Incident Command, and ultimately the White House over berms. Reinforcing barrier islands had long been a component of Louisiana's and Plaquemines Parish coastal restoration plans. But by early May, Governor Jindal and Parish President Nungesser had seized on an idea originally proposed by Del Taris, a Dutch independent research institute, together with Van Ord, a Dutch dredging and marine contractor, to construct massive linear sand berms along Louisiana's barrier islands for spill response to guard the coastline from oil. The Berms project presented an opportunity for Louisiana to take the lead on a large-scale response measure, with BP footing the bill. Moreover, after the spill ended, the Berms' purpose could pivot from response to coastal restoration. On May 11, Louisiana's Office of Coastal Protection and Restoration applied to the Corps for an emergency permit to construct berms to enhance the capability of the islands to reduce the inland movement of oil from the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Colonel Alvin Lee, two months shy of the end of his three-year tour as the commander of the Corps for the District of New Orleans, canceled a long-scheduled vacation, and the Corps immediately sought comments on the proposal from relevant federal and state agencies. The patience of Louisiana officials quickly wore thin. On May 17, Governor Jindal's office summoned Colonel Lee to the New Orleans airport for a meeting that included three parish presidents, the chairman of the Office of Coastal Protection and Restoration, the adjutant general for Louisiana, and the governor himself. The group's message to Colonel Lee was clear. Approve the Berms project and do it quickly. The entire Louisiana congressional delegation wrote Colonel Lee on May 20 to implore him to immediately approve the emergency authorization request for the Louisiana Berms. In a May 21 letter to President Obama, Senator Vitter asked the president to stop the, quote, tragic bureaucratic stranglehold, end quote, and to make this happen now. The Corps reviewed agency comments, conducting its own evaluations of the project and engaged in dialogue with state officials. 
On May 27, just 16 days after it had received Louisiana's application, the Corps approved the issuance of an emergency permit for a significantly scaled back berms project, six reaches totaling 39.5 miles in length. During the review process, commenting agencies expressed skepticism that the berms could be constructed in time to be effective for spill response and concern that partially completed berms would do more environmental harm than good. The Corps' job, however, was to analyze the feasibility and environmental impacts of the berms. The National Incident Commander had the task of determining whether the berms would be, quote, effective in combating the oil spill, end quote. That determination was necessary to make BP pay for the project as a response measure. The same day the Corps approved the six reaches, Admiral Allen authorized one of the six as a prototype oil spill response mechanism. Earlier in May, an interagency task force had advised the National Incident Command that the project would not be an effective spill response measure, in part because the berms could not be constructed in time to fight the spill. But public and political pressure had been unyielding. In an attempt to balance both sets of concerns, on May 22, Admiral Allen emailed an idea to his deputy, quote, what are the chances we could pick a couple of no-brainer projects and call them prototypes to give us some trade space on the larger issue and give that to Jindal this weekend, end quote. Five days later, the National Incident Command announced its approval of one prototype berm to cost $16 million. The accompanying press release promised that additional berms could be constructed if the approved section proved effective. Building even one prototype segment would take months, however, and the segment would then need to be analyzed. Any further construction, therefore, would not begin until the fall. But because of the meeting in Grand Isle on May 28, where Parish President Nungesser and Governor Jindal urged President Obama to approve the entire project, the National Incident Command would change course. At the meeting, the President turned to Admiral Allen and in front of the assembled governors and other leaders asked him to assemble a group of experts to examine the merits of Louisiana's proposal as a spill response measure. Admiral Allen replied that this might take some time. It was the Friday afternoon before Memorial Day weekend, but the President pushed, asking, quote, can you do it next week, end quote. Admiral Allen, put on the spot, pledged to do his best. After the meeting, Governor Jindal immediately announced that the President had, quote, agreed that work on the first segment must begin immediately, end quote, and that the federal government would decide, quote, within two or three days, end quote, whether the additional five segments should proceed. Parish President Nungesser told a similar story to Anderson Cooper on CNN that evening, saying, quote, the president committed by early next week. We will have an answer, and I believe that he's going to task BP. End quote. On June 1, Admiral Allen convened a summit in New Orleans, which included members of academia, one from Louisiana State University and a second from the University of New Orleans, federal trustees, Fish and Wildlife Service, and NOAA, as well as Governor Jindal and Parish President Nungesser. Although some experts at the summit expressed concern about causing harm to the environment, the discussion focused on the berm's potential to protect marshlands. 
The politics of the project remained close at hand. Parish President Nungesser walked out calling the meeting a dog and pony show, only to return in time to speak at the end. Governor Jindal continued to express his frustration and pressed for approval of all six reaches covered by the Corps permit. In the face of the spill and in front of the Louisiana politicians, no one directly opposed the berms, and a, quote, preponderance of opinion, end quote, at the summit, suggested the berms would be an effective response measure. That evening, following the summit, Admiral Allen and B.P.'s Hayward had dinner together in New Orleans to discuss the berms. The following afternoon, Admiral Allen gave the go-ahead to all six reaches approved by the Corps to be funded by B.P. B.P. estimated the cost to be $360 million, double the entire amount it had spent as of early June in helping the region respond to the oil spill. The Corps pegged the cost at $424 million. Louisiana awarded contracts for the project to Shaw Group, a Baton Rouge-based engineering, construction, and environmental services firm, and C.F. Bean, LLC, a dredging contractor based in Plaquemines Parish. Shaw estimated that five of the six berm reaches would be completed by November 1, and that the sixth would be completed by the end of November. The National Incident Command estimated that the construction time for all six reaches would be six to nine months. Even if those estimates had been correct, the project would have been nowhere close to complete by the time the government expected BP to kill the Macondo well with a relief well. As it happened, all of the estimates were far too rosy. Only a fraction of the planned reaches would be finished before the spill ended, and very little oil would be captured. End of section 16